our sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you download an app on that called Uversion. You click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get all the sermon notes from this morning. Uh, also, when you do that, uh, we are doing a thing in a couple weeks called the Agape. And on the bottom corner of these announcements, if in your smartphone you have a QR reader, you can just scan that, and it will actually bring you to a place on your smartphone where you can sign up to come to that. I'll talk about that more in just a minute. Uh, if you are new, there's a Connect card in the back of the chair in front of you. We'd love to have you fill that out. Take it back to the Welcome Center in the back. Or if you don't really want to meet us, you can just throw one of the offering boxes on the side and be like, I'm out. You know, if you really hate it, you can just throw it in the garbage can and walk out the door. Whatever. But, you know, that's they're going to be a great crowd, Dave. I'm just telling you, that's, that's what it's like. Um, in, in the early church, they, they did these things called the agapes. They were called love feasts. People misinterpreted the names for a really long time when it's like, hey, what are they doing? They're having a love feast. Oh, I get it. But it, but it was about getting together in fellowship, remembering Christ's death and his resurrection. So we are going to do something comparable to that. Last year, we, we didn't hear. We did a nice candlelit dinner for everybody, did some reflections. We're going to do those in our gospel communities this year. And you may say, well, I'm not in a gospel community. Great. So we're going to have you guys sign up. And we're going to send you to different houses to experience what we experienced as a large corporate community last year in a more intimate setting this year. So if you would like, we'd love to have you sign up and come to one of these. It's not going to be not going to be like you and like one other couple being like, hey, this is awkward. It's going to be like a bunch of you guys together in a room. There's it's going to be bread and good food and and wine and or soda if you don't like wine. It's okay. There's going to be you know, you maybe t- we're in the best location in the city. Anybody ever like pray one of those things? Like, Dear Jesus, we get somebody to be okay. No, heathens. Anyway, and again, if you do want to come to this, scan the QR scanner on this, and you can actually sign up with your smartphone or go in the back and talk to the guys at the Welcome Center. Uh, this Saturday, uh, we are doing a shotgun Saturday again. So if you would, and this is for guys and girls, you can both sign up. You can all come to this. Uh, when we did the pumpkin killing, we didn't give you guys a chance to shoot them with the shotgun. So if you want to go, we have like 25 pumpkins left, and you can... Shoot them. Although I got to tell you, it's not very impressive with a shotgun. They kind of just go. So it's yeah. I was thinking to be like, oh, it's awesome, but no, it's, and that, that's all you get. But you can shoot pumpkins if you want to. Sign there's a sign up for that in the back. You'll meet at the Element parking lot at 8:45, and then head out at nine together. Uh, the guy who runs it uh, is a sheriff, so there's lots of safety measures involved with that as well. Uh, this Monday, tomorrow night, one of our gospel communities is getting together at Orchid Brew, and they're watching the Chicago-Philadelphia game. It may not be that exciting because it's Chicago and Philadelphia, but whatever. <laughs> I need Mike back here going, dun dun This is why I never get to do announcements. I just offend everybody in the room and... That's how it works. Uh, It's going to start at 5. We know some of you only get off work at 5, but if you want to, 5, 5.30, 6 o'clock, show up. They're just going to watch the game together and have a good time getting to know each other. Also, next Saturday is the Women Teaching Women series. They're doing a healthy women's seminar. It's 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. They'll give you uh, tips and recipes for keeping healthy eating habits, which I just found out I have high cholesterol again last week, so... I hate eating healthy. I just want you to know. The doctor goes, you want to take drugs? And I go, no, I will eat better. He goes, take the drugs, eat whatever you want. And I go, I don't want to take the drugs. Although it does cross my mind every time that I can't. Every time I look at like a hamburger and go, yeah. 
Anyway, there'll be a demonstration by a certified trainer, some great fitness exercises. There's going to be devotional time and, and a healthy catered lunch. So there are sign-ups at the Welcome Center. If, you are, if you're a woman and you're really intrigued by this, please sign up and please come next week. Now, i got a video to show you before I introduce your guest speaker this morning. Uh, we did pumpkin killing last week. A lot of you showed up. Uh, some of you went to the carving but not the killing. Some of you came to the killing and not the carving. So we're just going to show you the video to show you what you missed next year. I keep thinking, if we keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger like we do, I don't know how we're going to pull one of these off because it was pretty. I'll just show you the video. It's Here you go. See what you miss. See what you miss. I swear, the first time that pumpkin, I was just like. It's like the crowd went. It was awesome. Anyway, uh, we have a special guest speaker this morning. We did a seminar the last two days called Leaders Who Last because we want your leaders at Element to last. And uh, Dave Kraft's been doing this for years and years. And he's uh, got a lot of great wisdom. And so we asked him this morning to come and share with you as well. So I'd like to introduce you to Pastor Dave Kraft. Thanks, get the cool podium. Yeah, we can move this, huh? Yes, I'll get that. Great, thanks. Well, good morning. Well, I think I'm going to have to come up next year to see that. You guys, you guys take pumping and smashing around here seriously. Wasn't there a rock group of yours, a number of years, maybe a salon called Smashing Pumpkins or something? Okay. Did you invite them to watch? They could use some of those videos as a backdrop to their concerts. Well, I've spent uh, quite a few years in Seattle. Um, it rains in Seattle. I actually moved from out in the desert in Palm Springs, California, up to Seattle. So I used to tell people I went from sweating for Jesus to being soaking wet for Jesus. But three and a half months ago, I, we got tired of the rain, and so we decided to come back down. So we settled in in southern Orange County in a little town called Laguna Hills. So now I'm going to say that I went from being soaking wet for Jesus to being sunburned for Jesus because we're close to the ocean down there. But at any rate, I am very delighted to be uh, back in California and happy to be here. We've been planning this for several months so it's a joy uh, for me to be here. I recall George Burns sharing. He showed up to speak somewhere when he was 99 years old. The dude was still able to speak through his cigar in his mouth. And he said, I just want to let you know that I'm very happy to be here today. He said, at my age, I'm happy to be anywhere. <laughs> and I'm not as old as George Burns. I don't want to live to be as old as George Burns was, but I can tell you from the bottom of my heart that I'm happy to be here today. Just a privilege for me to, to share with you. So let me pray and uh, we'll get going here. So Father, I thank you for this opportunity this morning. Thank you for your Holy Spirit being here. And I pray uh, that you would take this, your word, Lord Jesus, and speak to these, your people, to your honor and glory in your name. Amen. Well, the topic this morning that we're going to be discussing is divine desires. What is what are God's desires for you, first of all, as a follower of Jesus Christ? And then what are his designs for you, his desires for you, excuse me, his desires for you as a leader? So his divine desires as a follower and as a leader. I have four children. The oldest is a son. He's 37, lives up in Monterey, California. Then I have three daughters. They're 35, 31, and 29. And the 35-year-old, when she was a, a little squirt, she had this little tricycle. Anna has always been very enthusiastic about everything that she does. And so she would pedal furiously around the neighborhood. She'd be out and around meeting people. And she had a little sign in the back of her trike. 
that said, lead, follow, or get out of my way. <laughs> and she meant it and she still means it. So that's what we're going to be talking about today is leading and following. What are God's desires for you as a follower and for you as a leader? It's interesting that I've had the opportunity uh, over the years, I've been in ministry for 43 years, to put on conferences, to speak at conferences, to organize the workshops at conferences. And one thing that I've discovered, if you have a workshop on the subject of knowing God's will, and there's like eight or ten workshops, but that's one of them, I can guarantee you that you will have more people that will show up for the workshop on knowing God's will than any other workshop. Because all of us want to know what does God want? What, is God, what are God's desires for me? What is he expecting from me? So I want to unpack that a little bit with you this morning. And I want to give you four divine desires that God has for you, first of all, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Number one, he desires conversion to his kingdom. He wants you to be converted. Conversion simply means that you've turned around. The Bible talks in the book of Ephesians that we were walking away from God uh, into darkness and when we're converted, we're turned around so that we're walking into his light and walking in his light, walking into the light and continuing to walk in the light. So he wants us to be converted. He wants everything about us to be converted, our emotions, our will, our decisions, um, our whole life. There was a pastor who candidated uh, a few times at a church to be called as their pastor, and finally they made a decision that they were going to invite him to come and be their pastor. And the first Sunday he stood up to preach, he preached from John 3, 7, where Jesus is having that conversation with Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He didn't say it was a, it was a suggestion that you'd be born again. He didn't say I have an idea for you to consider. Uh, this is something you might want to think about. He said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. So he preached wholeheartedly and enthusiastic from that passage, you must be born again. And then the second Sunday came and he stood up and he preached the very same sermon, word for word. Third Sunday, he preached it again. The elders were sitting out there kind of looking at one another and saying, I think we might have a problem here. So they set up an appointment before they got to Sunday number four to talk with him. Came in, tried to be humble and respectful and said, Pastor, we, we really liked you. We called you to be our pastor and we really believe in you, but we're a little concerned that you preached the same sermon three Sundays in a row. And our question is, do you have any more sermons? And he said, well, of course I do. Well, then when are you going to preach the other ones? When everyone applies the first one. When everyone is born again, then we'll go on to step two. And so that's where it all starts. That is step one. You must be born again. Now, I don't want to assume just because you're here and you're in church that you are a Christian. Because going to church doesn't make you a Christian. In fact, Keith Green, one of my favorite musicians, passed away a number of years ago, used to say that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Having a relationship with Jesus Christ, confessing your sin, repenting, believing that he died on the cross for you, that he rose again for you, and embracing him as the Lord and Savior of your life, that's what makes you a Christian. Now, you could read in the Bible, you could pray, you could even take communion. You could give. You could be in a gospel community. We'll talk about that in a few minutes here. But that, none of that makes you a Christian. A Christian is a person who has a personal, vital relationship with Jesus Christ. So I would, I would ask you right away, out of the chute, that's the most important question of all. We have some road traffic here, don't we? Are the train tracks nearby? 
an airplane, NASCAR. I have a, a seven-year-old, I have uh, seven grandkids. We just had number seven about two and a half months ago. And the oldest is a girl named Mimi. One day we were sitting at the table a couple of years ago, and she turned to me right out of the blue. We weren't having a spiritual discussion or anything. She, said, she calls me Papa. She said, Papa, is Jesus your whole life? She goes like this with her, is Jesus your whole life? And I said, yes, Mimi, Jesus is my whole life. That's what it means to be converted, that Jesus becomes your life, your whole life life. Now, some people might think, well, Jesus being your whole life, that's kind of like for missionaries and pastors and full-time Christian workers. No, it's for everybody. That is the normal Christian life, that Jesus is your whole life. So that's question number one. And the number one desire that God has for all of us as followers, that we are converted to the kingdom of God. The second one is that we experience communion with his son. So conversion to his kingdom Communion with his son. God wants us not only to have our identity and our worth and our value in Jesus Christ, he also wants us to grow deeper and deeper in intimacy with Jesus Christ. And that comes through the practice of spiritual disciplines. Things like taking time to read your Bible, to pray, to get quietly before God, to get perspective and encouragement when we're, when we're troubled when we have difficulties, when we're really struggling. And I know a lot of you, without even knowing who you are, <coughs> I know that a lot of you struggle and are struggling and will struggle. And that's why it's so important that we just get alone with God so we can hear His voice, so we can sense and experience His encouragement through Scripture, through prayer, through private worship. And so He wants us to experience communion with His Son. There's a, one of my favorite verses uh, is uh, Hosea 6.3 in the Old Testament. It says, Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. And he will respond to us as surely as the coming of dawn or the rain of early spring. It takes effort to get to know the Lord. God is not opposed to effort as a Christian. He's opposed to earning. After you've been converted and experience the salvation in Jesus Christ, it's not wrong to expend effort to get to know Him. Any relationship, if it's going to grow and mature, whether it's a marital relationship, relationship that you have with a boss or a relative or with your children, it takes time, does it not, for relationships to grow and mature. And so it is in our relationship with Christ. It takes effort and it takes time. I'm very grateful that early uh, in my Christian experience, I became a Christian when I was 20 years old, Believe it or not, I'll be 72 the end of this year. And so I've been a Christian around 50 years, 51 years. And I was very thankful that early in my Christian experience, some people strongly encouraged me to get up early in the morning and spend time with God. Just reading scripture and praying and getting my focus and getting encouragement. And so that's been a habit by His grace for all of these years. So I'm going to encourage you in the same thing. I read a story about uh, some shrimp fishermen off the coast of Florida that for many years had fished in this same area. And when the fishing was done at the end of the day, they had shrimp that they couldn't sell or couldn't market. They basically would just throw the discarded shrimp out on the water. And all the seagulls that lived in the area basically waited till the end of the day, and they knew that that shrimp was going to be out there, and they just swooped down and just plucked the shrimp off the top of the water. The problem was that those seagulls had never learned how to find food on their own. The food had always been provided for them. One day came when the fishing just wasn't working anymore, and so all the boats moved north. And that entire generation of seagulls all died. 
because they had never learned how to find food on their own. They'd always depended on someone else for their food, and so they couldn't make it. And sad to say, that can be the picture of a lot of Christians. I know you get good feeding. I've heard extremely good reports about Aaron his teaching and his preaching here, and so I know you get good, good spiritual food on Sundays. But he would be the first one to tell you that it's not enough just to come on Sunday and get fed and then wait around till next Sunday to get fed again. No one would do that physically. I don't know anyone who ever got the brilliant idea of eating 21 meals on Sunday so that you wouldn't have to eat again the rest of the week. Just think of all the time I would save. You'd be like that guy in New York that eats, you know, 85 hot dogs with buns and mustard and relish and everything in three minutes. And those guys are total wackos. I don't know how they do that. They do not have human stomachs. Like maybe they have two or three stomachs, all kind of stomach down in one leg and a stomach down in the other. But they do that. But that's what it would be like for you to eat 21 meals on a Sunday and then not eat again the rest of the week. God wants you to feed on him on a daily, regular basis, just like you feed yourself with physical food. So he wants to see you converted to his kingdom. He wants you to experience communion with his son. And thirdly, he wants you to experience community with his people. Community with his people. Turn to Acts chapter 2 if you have a Bible. Acts chapter 2 is a marvelous picture of the early church. I'm going to read verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. This is right after Peter preached. 3,000, at least 3,000. There's a possibility they didn't count the men and the uh, the women and the children. It might have been 3,000 men, so there might have been more than 3,000. But for sure it was at least 3,000 people. So the first megachurch was not in Texas or California. The first megachurch was right here in Acts chapter 2. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to any to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The culmination of this passage is verse 47. Because of what they were together, because of the fact that they experienced community together, gave birth to what you have in verse 47, that they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day. But notice in verse 46, it says, and day by day, attending the temple, that's where they're all together in one big meeting, attending the temple together, and then breaking bread in their homes. So they had gospel communities. Now you might think that you were the, one of the first churches in this area in California that had gospel communities, but the gospel community started right here in Acts chapter 2. So mega churches started here, gospel community started here. A gospel community is a great place to experience all that they experienced here. So if you're not in one of these communities, I'm going to strongly encourage you to do that. Join a GC. Get on mission. Build relationships with other people. Share your life with people in a, in a gospel community and have them share their lives with you. I know they're, they're opening up new groups. They're training new leaders. And so it's a great opportunity. I think literally it's impossible 
for you to experience everything that God wants you to experience just by coming here on Sunday or one of these other pumpkin-killing parties or whatever else that you might do here. And you have great social events and everything, but I don't think any of those will take the place of sitting together with the same group week after week, experiencing community and being on mission together as a group. And so that is God's third divine desire for you, community with his people. The fourth divine desire that God has for you is for you to be committed to his purpose. So converted to his kingdom, born again, communion with his son, taking time in spiritual disciplines, carving time to spend with him. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, I'd love to do this and that. I would love to, to spend time with Jesus. I just don't have the time. I'm, I'm going to try to find some time. Well, I don't think time is something you find. I've been alive for a long time and I've never met anybody who all of a sudden was walking down the street one day and found a piece of time. So, oh, look at that. There's a piece of time. I'll just take that and add it to what I already have and I'll have some more time. You and I know it doesn't work that way. You have to take time from something else. You have to stop doing one thing so you can make the time to spend that with Jesus Christ and grow in Him. And so then the last one is commitment to His purpose. It says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ, that every one of us are ambassadors. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, up on the screen there, and on, in your notes as well, talks about the fact that the pastors and teachers at this church, Aaron and his staff and his team, are here to equip you for the work of ministry. They're not here to do the ministry for you. Their job is to equip you to do the work of ministry. So all of us really are involved in ministry. We're all ambassadors for Jesus Christ. An ambassador is simply someone who represents someone else. So wherever you are, in your neighborhood, at your job, at school, wherever you work out, whatever sports organizations you might belong to, whatever clubs you belong to, you represent Jesus Christ in that arena wherever you find yourself. You are an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Every one of us is ordained to the work of the ministry. Now, once again, I can hear somebody say, well, isn't like ordination something that pastors and missionaries do? Generally speaking, yes. But I think we need to think of it bigger than that. Because every one of us, if you're a Christian, you are ordained to the work of the ministry wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you find yourself during the week. So the most important thing that happens in any given week is not what happens between, in your case here, between 9.30 and 10.30. The most important thing that happens is between 10.30 and 9.30 the next week, all week long, wherever you are. That's the work of the ministry, and that's what you're ordained to. We, uh, for four years, were up in Northern California in the town of Newark, just across the, uh, the bay from Palo Alto and Stanford University. And we had a couple in our church that became a Christian, uh, David and Karen Allen. David was a, a big guy. He's about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, weighed well over 200 pounds. He, uh, he wore a black jacket, had the full beard, drove a Harley. He was not a hell's angel, but he looked like a hell's angel. But he had, had the heart of a, just a, the softest heart. It, but he was big, had big arms, big hands. He came up to me one day after the first service, in between the two services, and he put his arm around my shoulder. And he smiled and he said, he had this deep voice, he said, Dave, I've got this uh, friend of mine that's an uh, ordained plumber. And I smiled at him. I said, David, you got it. You understand it. 
Plumbers are ordained. School teachers are ordained. Students are ordained. Doctors, lawyers, dentists, whatever it is that you do, wherever you are, every one of us is ordained to the work of the ministry. D.L. Moody, he was the Billy Graham of the early 1900s, was in a train station once waiting for a train. There were not a lot of seats. A gentleman got up to go to a newspaper and he sat down uh, right where that gentleman had been, actually wound up sitting next to his wife, and they struck up a conversation. A few minutes later, the gentleman came back with his newspaper and saw Moody get up and leave, walked over to his wife, and he said, well, who was that? Oh, she, she said, I don't know, he was a, a pastor, a Christian from uh, Chicago. And well, what were you talking about? Oh, he was talking about Jesus and the Bible. And So her husband was a little upset. So he said to her, why don't you just tell him to mind his own business? And she looked at him, she said, you know, if you were talking to him, you would have thought that that was his business. But it's not just the business of the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers and the D.L. Moody's and the Billy Graham's. It's all of our business to be on mission, to be out there, every one of us ordained to the work of the gospel. Now I know you're thinking, well, that's just not me. I'm not very vocal. I'm not really good at that. I, I'm, not, I'm not a speaker. I don't communicate well. I don't have the gifts and abilities to do that kind of thing. I think we need to see God bigger than our lack of ability, than our insufficiencies, our sinfulness, our problems, whatever it is that holds us back. I'm going to read something I read yesterday when, I was, when we had the seminar, and I think it should be an encouragement to you. It's the first thing in my prayer book. When I open it up to spend time in prayer, this is the thing I'm staring at, first thing. This is what it says by A.W. Tozer. Anything God has ever done at any time, he can do now. Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. Anything God has ever done through anyone, he can do for you. Stop and think about this. Anything, anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do it here. Anything God has ever done at any time, he can do it now. And anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do it for you. Do you guys say amen around here? That's okay. God wants to do here, now, and through you what he's always done through history. And he's able to do that. My Bible in Hebrews 13.8 in your Bible says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He just wants us to be available to him. He wants us to be converted. He wants us to experience communion with his son, community with his people, and then be committed and trust and believe that he wants to use every one of us. Someone said that every heart is either a heart, heart, or he said this way, every heart with Christ is a missionary, and every heart without Christ is a mission field. So if you have Jesus Christ in your heart, you are a missionary. So, well, I'm not a missionary. We have missionaries that we pay. No, no, no. You are a missionary. You're a missionary exactly where God put you. And that's one of the philosophies and beliefs of, of Element Church. That's what those gospel communities are. They're communities that are on mission in their neighborhoods to take the gospel. Because I know your leaders here at this church want to see this church just bust out the seams. They want to plant other churches all over this area. And that means that everyone here will be on mission. So those are the four divine desires that God has for followers. Now perhaps you're a leader. A leader is simply a person that God wants to use to help people move from where they are to someplace else. So if God wants to use you to move students or children or youth or other adults or homeless people, whoever it is that you're interested in impacting and influencing, 
and help them go from where they are to somewhere else that would be better, that would be a win-win for them, for the church, for the kingdom of God. That's a leader. So let me share four divine desires that God has for his leaders. Number one, he wants to see Christ. God the Father wants to see his son, Jesus Christ, in the life of his leaders. He wants to see Jesus Christ oozing out of every pore of your body and everything you do and everything you say. He wants to see Jesus. A number of years ago, I was in downtown Los Angeles. And for many, many years, I followed on the radio a pastor who pastored a church called Church of the Open Door in downtown Los Angeles. That gentleman passed away a number of years ago. His name was J. Vernon McGee. How many of you have ever listened on the radio to J. Vernon McGee? Look at this, okay? Isn't that amazing? The guy's been dead for 30 years and he's still preaching. You can still find him on the radio, and he was the pastor of that church for many, many years. It was a huge church. If my memory serves me well, it could seat probably 2,000 to 2,500 people in the same building at the same time. There were three levels. And it, went all, it started back, went all the way around to the side, so that seating went all the way right up to the edge of the stage here. Then there was a second deck and then the third deck, almost like a, a football stadium. And I came in that building, because I'd heard so much about it but never been in it, and I thought, wonder what it looks like to stand up in front, as if that room were filled. And so I made my way down. It took me a couple of minutes to walk from the back of the room all the way up the front, climbed up the stairs, stepped into this humongous pulpit. And I just stood there for a couple of minutes, and I looked in front of me, and there was a little plaque. And it said, Sir, we would see Jesus. It's from John 12, 21, where some men came to one of Jesus' disciples and said, Sir, we want to see Jesus. And I think that's the cry of people's hearts today. It's a reminder to whoever was standing in that pulpit, as a leader, as a speaker, communicator, pastor, we want to see Jesus. That's what God the Father wants to see in your life as a leader, and I think that's what people want to see. Number two, he wants to see character. The Lord wants to see character in your life as a leader. That's the missing ingredient in leadership today. More people fall over character issues than over competency issues in leadership. And we see it in the business world, and we see it too bad in the church world. And we see it everywhere that leaders are just falling because they lack integrity, because you can't depend on them. They're not faithful. They lie. They cheat. I mean, to turn on the news any day of the week and you hear somewhere, someplace, some leader is falling again over character issues, sexual harassment, or inappropriate behavior. There was a coach, a Penn State coach now, that's being uh, hauled off someplace because of sexual harassment issues that go back a number of years. And now they're going to say that the University of Pennsylvania covered it up, the coaching department hid it and kept it out of sight, so it's going to blow up and have a story of its own. And so you don't have to look very far to see these character issues. So I think a leader needs to be a person of character, integrity, honesty. Say what you mean and mean what you say. Don't make promises that you don't intend to keep. Don't throw out cliches like, hey, let's get together for lunch next week. I'll give you a call. And then you never call. Or you tell somebody you're going to have something on Thursday and you forget about it as soon as you say it. Pretty soon people come to the conclusion that you can't be trusted as a leader. And when you get that reputation as a leader that people don't trust you anymore, your leadership basically is over. They might still hang around for a while. But um, as far as uh, having them follow you and believe in you and respect you is pretty much over. The worst thing that anyone can say about a leader is, I don't trust him or I don't trust her. I'm thinking of a, a coach. He coached uh, collegiate basketball. He's the only 
player in the history of the NCAA basketball to be in the Basketball Hall of Fame both as a coach and as a player. Anybody know who it is? John Wood. Was at UCLA for a number of years. It's going to take quite a while before anybody repeats the record that he had there as a basketball coach. He was also a Christian, and one of his sayings that I really like is this. Pay more attention to your character than your reputation. For your reputation is merely what other people think you are, whereas your character is what you really are. Let me say it again. Pay more attention to your character than your reputation. For your character is what you really are, whereas your reputation is merely what other people think you are. And I think far too many leaders spend a lot of time worrying about their reputation. wonder how I'm coming across. Am I doing okay? Do they like me? Um, do, they, do they think well of me? Am I respected? That, that's all how they think about you. But the question is, how are you really on the inside? What are you really like as a leader? It's interesting when you read 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the two chapters that are often most quoted and taught on regarding leadership, most everything in those two chapters has to do with character in the context of relationships. So the second thing that God desires for you as a leader is he wants to see character. Thirdly, he wants to see caring. He wants to know that you really care about people. Turn to the book of Ezekiel, the big, uh, one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. We could say leaders because that's what they were. Prophesy against the leaders, the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds, leaders of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. I think leadership is primarily about Jesus Christ. And that's the first mistake that a leader can make. They think, well, I've been wanting to get into this leadership role so I could be a boss and so people would really look up to me and so I can have some authority and some power. Those are all the wrong reasons to be in leadership. The primary reason that you are in leadership is because you love Jesus Christ and you care about his people. So leadership is about Jesus it's about his kingdom. It's about his people. And genuinely caring about people. Now it might sound like a cliche, and I know you've heard it before, but people don't really care about how much you know. In fact, what you might know as a leader because you read and study and you think, well, that gives you an edge. Everybody and anybody can know what you know today because of the Internet and all the information that's available to just about anybody. But people really don't care about how much you know, but they do want to know about how much you care. Do you really care about people? Do you really love them? Or are you in leadership for yourself? That's a sobering thought for each and every leader. That leadership is about Jesus, his kingdom, and his people. It's not primarily about you as the leader. And lastly, God's divine desire for you as a leader, he wants to see confidence. He wants to truly see you competent and good at what you do. It's interesting, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, it says, Let the rulers who rule well, or the leaders who rule well and work hard, be worthy of double honor. Ruling well. 
with excellence, high standards, and working hard. So leaders today, we want them to be competent, we want them to be good, we want them to focus and, and, and really be the kind of people who, who model certain things. Now I'm not saying that they have to be perfect, but they, they shouldn't be lazy and half-hearted. They should want to, as George Bush liked to say, just leave it all on the field. Give 110%. Do what you do well. When Jesus turned the water into wine, what kind of wine was it? It was the best wine they'd ever tasted. He didn't do anything half-hearted. He had a high standard for himself. Not, not, he doesn't have that perf- perfect standard for us, but he wants us to work hard, to, to oversee and to lead well, and to be competent at what we do. Michelangelo had a teacher called Giovanni. And Michelangelo was an extremely talented. We all know that the work that he did. I mean, it's lasted all these years. And Giovanni walked into the studio once when Michelangelo was working on something. It was far beneath his ability and what he could do. And he picked it up and he threw it and smashed it against the wall. And then he turned to Michelangelo and he said, Michael, talent is cheap, but dedication is costly. And so we're not talking about how talented you are. In fact, talent is overrated. Tim Tebow, I just finished reading his, uh, his uh, biography, and he made this comment. Hard work will always beat talent when talent doesn't work hard. And I think that we don't have to be extremely talented and brilliant and extremely gifted and all these things, but we do by God's grace and say, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to give it the best I can. I'm going to give my five loaves and two fishes to Jesus, make myself available, and I'm going to be the best leader by God's grace that I can be. That's what he honors. Because you can rest on your talent. There's a lot of talented people that don't do anything and don't accomplish anything. A lot of gifted people. But God always has a spot in his heart for the person who's going to give everything he does have. Even though he or she might not think he has a lot, they still give it. They give their five loaves and two fishes, and they watch Jesus multiply it. Now, there's a lot of reasons why, uh, why we don't do this. I call it the terrible twos. Not uh, T-W-O, but T-O-O. It goes something like this. Well, I'm too young. I'm just, I'm 16, 17, 15, 18. I'm just not old enough to really make a contribution or really make my life count. On the other hand, with people that say, well, I'm too old. I'm 50 or 60. I'm just, God can't use me anymore. I'm sort of outdated. I'm not in tune with what's going on. Um, I'm too old. Other people might say, uh, I'm too tired. Or I'm too sick. Or I'm too busy. And so I'm just, I just can't make that kind of contribution. I can't really be in community and on mission and do the things you're talking about because of the terrible twos. Well, I could make that same case. Um, certainly I could say I'm too old. I could tell God, you know, I'm almost 72 years old. Um, I should spend the rest of my life sitting by a lake with a fishing pole or uh, hitting that little white ball around acres and acres of grass. I, I'm just too old for this anymore. And God, God was going to say to me, Dave, excuse denied. Get down on the field. I could tell him I'm too tired. I have sleep apnea. I've had it as long as I can remember. I never sleep through a night. On a good night, I'll wake up twice. On a bad night, I wake up about every hour, hour and a half. And still, I'll get up in the morning. I'll get a nap here or there so I can tell God, well, you know me. You could have healed me, but you chose not to. So I'm too tired for this. I just can't do this anymore. And God's going to say, nice try, Dave. Excuse denied. Come down on the field. So I have my third trump card. 
I can tell him I'm too sick because I have prostate cancer. I've had it for about four years. This month, I'm going to go back in. They're going to do the blood work. And so far, it's been okay. But you never know. If you know anyone who has cancer or you have it, you never know. Even though you've not had it for years, it can come back with a vengeance just like that. It could happen any day. Some of you have parents or grandmothers or grandfathers, and you know that's the case. And I can tell God I'm just too sick. I, I, need, to, I need to slack off. God's going to wink and say, nice try, Dave. Excuse denied. Come on down on the field. So let me close with this. This is, uh, this is football time. Anybody who watched collegiate football yesterday? Uh, who honestly is anxious to get out here so you can go home and watch your favorite NFL team? Okay, honest people. Okay, so we're going to close here in a minute so you'll be on your way. But I'm going to tell you a story about the Oklahoma Sooners. They're still fighting to try to keep up on the top. I think they lost last night again, didn't they? Oklahoma. Excuse me? Yeah. Oh, they did, they did win last night. Okay, well, good, good. I'm an Oklahoma fan. I've got my eye on that quarterback. He's a Christian quarterback. But years ago, the Oklahoma Sooners, and they've had a great uh, program for years and years, they had um, a guy that was their coach by the name of Bud Wilkinson. Anybody follow them, knows who that name is, recognize the name? Anybody all? Bud Wilkinson? Quite a few years ago. Um, so they won on Friday night and Saturday. They were on the radio. Or excuse me, they won on Saturday. And either Saturday or Sunday they were on the radio. And the announcer was just all enthusiastic and all jazzed about the team and how wonderful it was to win. And then they turned to Bud and they said, but why don't you just tell our listening audience the contribution that football has made to the American people? And Bud said, um, well, the contribution that football has made to the American people is really nothing. Nada. Zero. And the guy was just, you don't often see in a radio announcer kind of stuck for words, but this guy was stuck. He said, Bud, how can you say that? I mean, look, just look around you. Look at the state of Oklahoma. Look all over the country. On the weekend, we just absolutely go crazy about football. Baseball is not the American pastime. Football is, we love football. How, how, could you, how dare you tell our audience that football has made no contribution to the American people? You, you need to explain yourself. So Bud said, well, think of it this way. Football could best be described as 22 men down in a field who are in desperate need of rest. Being observed by 22,000 fans up in the seats who are in desperate need of exercise. <laughs> so what is the contribution of the game of football to the people up in the stands? Nothing. And that's the way the church can be. You have a few people down on the field, killing themselves, working hard. You find that num numbers of people in the same, various different roles. They do three or four or five things. It's like somebody in a football team where they play offense, they play defense, or on special teams. They're, they're walking around with Gatorade and helping guys squirt it in their mouth. They're, they're carrying clothes. They're, working. they're doing everything, just a handful. And everybody up there is watching. Like the person who said, uh, work fascinates me. I could watch it for hours. <laughs> so if you're down on the field and you're serving, you're in a gospel community, you're on mission, you're giving, you're helping, you really want to help Element Church make a difference. On behalf of your leadership team, I want to thank you. However, if you're sitting up in the bleachers, kind of observing from a distance, my word of gentle, loving encouragement to you is to get off of your butt, come down on the field, get involved, get engaged, get dirty for Jesus, find a spot on the team, join a gospel community, be on mission, pray that God would use you and help you understand that you are ordained to the work of the ministry wherever God has put you. Amen? Amen. So now we're going to invite the band to come on up here, make their way up here. We believe, part of our theology is we believe that God initiates and we respond. So now's our opportunity to respond to him. We're going to respond, first of all, by taking communion. So there's communion stations to my right and my left. Make your way up here. 
Remember that communion is for Christians. So if you're not a Christian, you should let this go by. If you are a Christian, I pray that you'll be thinking about what you're doing. Come up and take the bread, which represents the body of Jesus Christ, broken. He died for you. Let's get this off your way. That He died for you. His blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Then we're going to worship. The band's going to lead us in worship. There's giving baskets on the wall so you can partake uh, in the giving. Once again, if you're not a Christian or if you're brand new and this is the first time you're here, let it go by. We're just happy that you're here. Fill out a card. Let us know you're here. We'd love to follow up with you. There's going to be uh, pastors and deacons and elders in the back to pray with you if you'd like to, uh, as soon as we're through here, when I'm through. If you want some prayer for anything we've talked about today, you can go back and pray with someone. There'll be food and fellowship at the end in the back room back there, so hang around. Especially if you're new, we'd love to meet you and connect. So hang around, spend some time with us. Let me pray, and we'll turn it over to the band to lead us in worship. So Lord, I thank you. Thank you for today. I pray that you will have spoken to people here, and they will take seriously what you've said to them and act upon it by your grace and for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.